0: Right. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, December 3rd. Today, back in the day, December 3rd, 1847, Frederick Douglass and Martin Delaney launched their newspaper, The North Star. It was an abolitionist paper published out of Rochester, New York, subscriptions two bucks a year. It had estimated 4,000 subscribers. Their slogan, and I'm quoting, Right is of no sex. Truth is of no color. God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren. Douglas got inspired to start his own paper after reading William Lloyd Garrison's weekly, The Liberator. He spoke well of Garrison a white abolitionist, but he also saw the need for the oppressed to have their own paper, where their voices would be front and center. Douglas and Garrison didn't completely agree on how to bring emancipation to America. Garrison believed the constitution and thus the country was fundamentally pro-slavery and that the union should be dissolved. Douglas saw nonviolence and education as the way forward. Nonetheless, the two toured the country together. They gave speeches, raised money that kept the paper alive, given the readership was pretty small. North Star kept publishing until 1951, when it merged with another abolitionist paper to become Frederick Douglass's paper. That's quite a name. That paper kept going till 1860, when Douglass shifted his priority to inclusion and equal pay of black soldiers in the Civil War. Today, back in the day, December 3rd, 1948, Ozzy Osbourne was born. Born in Birmingham, England. The Prince of Darkness spent 10 years as the lead singer for Black Sabbath. In 1979, Black Sabbath fired him for drug and alcohol abuse. I know, you're thinking you thought that might have earned him a promotion. Ozzy later said his drug use and drinking were no worse than the rest of the band, but he went on to release 12 solo albums. And over the course of his career, he sold over 100 million albums. And in 2017, Ozzy and Black Sabbath gave a final farewell tour. I mean, a final farewell tour. There we go ending in their hometown of Birmingham. I think it's pronounced Birmingham. At least that's what they say in Peaky Blinders. Now 71 years old, Ozzie is known as the godfather of metal. In December back in the day 1964, after many failed attempts, five towns voted to consolidate as one city. That city ended up becoming Lincoln City. Early in the 20th century, a string of small beach towns, according to the Oregon Encyclopedia, cropped up in North Lincoln County. Decades later, five of those towns, Taft, Ocean Lake, De Lake, Nell Scott, and Cutler City, consolidated. The names of some of those small towns had mildly interesting origins. Nell Scott was named because store owner Charles Nelson and Dr. W.G. Scott bought some land, formed the Nell Scott Land Company, combining their names, and the town of Nell Scott was born. In the 50s, big population growth in the coast and the big need for improved water distribution, sewers, and fire protection couldn't be met by each of those little towns alone. They started talking about consolidation. And finally, December 1964, they succeeded. The name was chosen from a newspaper ballot of five of the most popular names considered. Miracle Beach, Miracle City, Surfland, Holiday Beach, and Lincoln City. Tell you what, Miracle Beach and Surfland could have been huge. In the year, they were incorporated sculptor Anna Hyatt Huntington donated a bronze statue of Abraham Lincoln. And the dedication by Governor Marco Hatfield marked the new beginning for the five towns to become one. As for the name De Lake, one of those five towns, some claim that early Finnish homesteaders would say, I'm going to De Lake. I'm serious. And others say the D and the E constitute the French word meaning by, hence De by the lake. De Lake, not to be confused with the D River, a really, really short river. There's a sign that says it's the world's shortest river. That is controversial. If you're an Oregonian, you believe that sign. If you're from if you're from Great Falls, Montana, you think that sign's a big fat propagandistic lie. Oregon's D River was listed in the Guinness Book as the world's shortest river at 440 feet, 130 meters. But that was contested in 1989 when Guinness named the Roe River in Great Falls, Montana, as the shortest. Not to be outdone or underdone, the people of Lincoln City submitted a new measurement of the D River at 120 feet long when marked at extreme high tide and the lincoln city chamber of commerce sharply critiqued the roe river as merely and i'm quoting a drainage ditch surveyed for a school project and indeed fifth grade students of teacher Susie nardlinger at lincoln elementary school in great falls no relation to lincoln city it was just a different lincoln there are a lot of things named lincoln including my older brother But even with the criticism of the Roe River, Nardlinger shot back and said that the D was merely an ocean water backup. That's also a quote. She also pointed there was an alternative fork to the Roe, which is only 30 feet long, suggested that that required a new survey. Guinness never ruled on the dispute. Instead, they chose to no longer list the shortest river. The controversy was just too thick. Today we'll start with the Quick 6 news headlines and we'll have an interview with Joanne Zuhl, Executive Editor at Street Roots. X-Ray. First up, it is today's Quick 6 local rundown. Frustrated Portland business leaders have launched a group to revive downtown Portland. Jim Mark, the CEO of real estate company Melvin Mark, I think that's his dad, by the way, called the governor really mad about the damage done downtown from protesters. And now he and other Portland business people have started the Rose City Downtown Collective. They want to pressure officials for more concrete action while launching their own initiatives to revive the city's core. They sent an open letter on Wednesday, signed by nearly 300 business people, a lot of property owners, real estate companies, business service firms. The group said they're done passively waiting for help and had formed to support local downtown businesses, clean up downtown, and connect business owners with the resources they need to clean up the damage and take the boards off their windows. Absent from those signings, however. Were notably the major downtown tech employers, including Amazon, Puppet, eBay, and New Relic. Also, very few of the city's progressive young business leaders signed the document. Here's a little backstory, and thank you to the Oregonian for this. Mark, that's not his first name, it's his last name. His first name is Jim, Jim Mark. He's got two first names, but his last name's actually Mark. So Mark, also known as Jim, had a heated email exchange in September over property damage with Nick Blosser. I was the governor's chief of staff. Blosser, by the way, just joined the Joe Biden transition team last month. Blosser called Mark ill-informed for claiming that the governor hadn't condemned vandalism in downtown Portland, but also said the focus should be on the protesters' calls for social justice. Here's a quote from Blosser's email. We all want the violence to end, but honestly, their point that violence against them has been going on for a very long period of time rings very true, and real actions to change that need to happen. Blosser's email became public through a records request from the Portland Business Journal. Blosser said, I know you know all this, and I'd like to see your support for real change for people be as public as your concern about the property damage. Some point, Maybe we'll ask the Rose City Downtown Collective about their social justice priorities as well.
1: And now your daily dose of data. As of Wednesday, Oregon Health Authority has reported 1,244 new cases and 18 new deaths. This brings the total number of positive COVID cases to 78,160, with a total number of 953 deaths. Governor Kate Brown has announced that she will be implementing coronavirus restrictions for 25 extreme risk counties. Governor Brown announced on Tuesday, 25 of the state's 36 counties are at extreme risk of coronavirus transmission. They will be facing the most stringent of new restrictions for businesses and social gatherings for at least two weeks. The list includes Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas, Marion, Lane, and Jackson counties.
0: Governor Kate Brown has again loosened criteria for early release from prison due to the pandemic. This is the third time since June the governor has ordered the Oregon Department of Corrections to review inmates for potential early release This time, Brown said she will consider inmates who are within six months of release from prison. According to state officials, 1,396 inmates have tested positive and 17 have died since the pandemic began. 396 workers at prisons have also tested positive.
1: Following a recount, Travis Stovall is set to become Gresham's next mayor, first black person to hold the seat. Although the general election was held almost a month ago, some races are still being called. Following a recall, entrepreneur Travis Stovall will be the next mayor of Gresham. Stovall came out with 13 more votes than Eddie Morales, a current Gresham city councilor. Stovall has 16,646 votes to Morales's 16,633 with three other candidates trailing behind. The final results were released Wednesday and certified by the city of Gresham. Stovall aims to make budget cuts while still ensuring critical services are available. He is embraced by the business community and plans to prioritize equitable economic development.
0: We don't focus all the time on crime news here, but a death investigation is underway in North Portland after a 35-year-old man was shot and killed. Police found Ian Alexander Phillips in the area of Northeast 122nd and Davis around 1.30 in the morning on Monday after receiving reports of a person down. Police are investigating his death as a homicide, haven't released any information about suspects, but if people do have information, You can call 503-823-1040. It's 503-823-1040. And that is today's Quick Six Local Rundown.
1: X-Ray. For our next segment, we have a conversation between X-Ray's Julia Oppenheimer and Joanne Jewell, executive editor for our weekly newspaper, Street Roots. They'll be discussing the proposed housing policies coming to the state legislature and what they mean for renters and landlords. Here are Joanne and Julia.
2: 2020 comes to an end, so does renter protection. Joining me now is Joanne Zuhl, Executive Editor for local weekly newspaper Street Roots. She's here to talk about some of the proposed housing policies coming to the state legislature. Joanne, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? I'm
3: doing good. It's a little windy out there, but doing fine. It's, there's a sun in the sky. so that It is
2: great. super windy. Let's talk about the uh, new legislation. Can you give us some of the basics on the new legislation and what it means for renters and landlords?
3: Sure, sure. So I'm sure anyone who's been watching the news knows that uh, renters are struggling under the COVID situation because of lost job, lost wages, and not able to pay rent. And of course, we've had uh, you know, rolling moratoriums going on. And currently statewide, we have a moratorium through the end of the year. Now uh, the House, the Oregon House Interim Committee on Housing, uh, is weighing over a proposed legislation that would allow landlords to apply for state grants to reimburse them for 80% of unpaid rent uh, accrued through April 1st. Uh, the landlords would forgive the remaining 20%. Now, if awarded, uh, that means landlords couldn't evict tenants for non-payment for rent until July 1st, 2021, provided the tenants signed a legal document declaring financial hardship. Uh, all of this is to be paid out of a $100 million landlord compensation fund. Now, it, it sounds like, okay, this is a step in the right direction for a lot of people to see some kind of relief coming. However, uh, advocates on both sides, between renters and landlords, you know, aren't 100% happy. Landlords want to see more protections. The advocates for the tenants are saying that you could do all this and, uh, you know, pay the landlords, but renters are still going to be in a vulnerable and fragile situation come next year. They're still going to owe money and they're still going to be subject to evictions uh, after March 1st if they can't pay the rent or even after July 1st when that moratorium is lifted. So, Complex uh, uh, proposal, you know, some hope to it, but there's also criticism to be worked out. And, of course, the governor, or actually, excuse me, House Speaker Tina Kotek has uh, called for, you know, the governor to declare a catastrophic, because of the catastrophic situations that are happening, to have a special session, it would be remote, of course, uh, this December to address housing, perhaps address this bill. So perhaps something could be on the books by the end of this year.
2: So that um, compensation fund, how is that? Did you already say this? But how is that being paid for?
3: Well, it would be paid for from uh, funding from the CARES Act, which was a relief from Congress. Now, it, at a hundred million dollars, I, I, it sounds like a lot of money, but uh, to put into perspective, that is uh, half, if not a third, of what Oregon renter households are expected to owe by the end of the year. It's estimated between $250 million and uh, close to $400 million will be owed by the end of wow. this year. So it's a drop in the bucket. And, of course, state legislators, legislators in Oregon and other states are hopeful that Congress will move forward and pass uh, additional aid. Um, there's a proposal for $100 billion specifically for housing aid. Uh, in which Oregon lawmakers are hoping to get 1% just based on statistically how they get money, that would be uh, $1 billion, which could go a long way to help both landlords and tenants.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So who's supporting this bill and who's against it? Obviously, Well, there's support
3: uh, from landlords. Obviously, this would be needed relief for them. I mean, it's uh, certainly been a hardship on particularly mom-and-pop landlords who are trying to, you know, survive on these on this rent. Uh, If that's not coming through, everyone's hurting because of the economic Mm -hmm. pressures from this pandemic. Uh, But also they want to see protections. Landlords and their representatives think that there needs to be more protections. They want to see a a tax credit for the 20 percent landlords would have to forgive an unpaid rent. They want to see protections against uh, renters who they say are taking advantage of the situation on the other side, we actually, uh, Katrina Holland, who's the executive director of JOIN, which is a housing program, a long-term housing program here in Portland, uh, is actually quite angry about this, saying that this is not going to, this is just, you know, putting off the inevitable. It's helping landlords, but in the end, that renters are still still on the line and still vulnerable.
2: So the, the rent would be forgiven for 80% for the Correct. tenants. um And that's just through March 1st, or that's through the end of the year, and then they would have to start paying again?
3: Uh, That would be for unpaid rent accrued through April 1st. Okay. Uh, And then landlords would, you know, the other 20% landlords would eat, basically, and that's where they want to see the tax credit.
2: Uh Uh-huh.
3: And then moving forward, who knows, but this would go through April 1st.
2: Uh Uh-huh. So then tenants are still on the line for money if they haven't been able to pay up until now. There's a good chance they won't be able to pay.
3: Yeah, there's we have in the paper, uh, which is which is both helpful and also kind of you know curious. Obviously, the whole process you have to go through to apply to get this assistance, and and tenants actually have to uh, sign a declaration of financial hardship to the landlord to qualify for these new moratorium protections, and for the landlord to get that funding. Um, so you know, there's a complex process to go through to make this happen. Um, again, this is also where tenant, uh, advocates are really concerned that this is, this just puts the tenants in a more vulnerable position, basically declaring to their landlord, their financial situation, um, and just putting them on the line. It just is not, it, it's a power dynamic that tenants rights folks are not really comfortable with Mm -hmm. at the same time we have to have some kind of moratorium some kind of legislation has to come through they say
2: i'm talking to joanne zuhl of street Roots. this is julia oppenheimer um so is there there you obviously said there's only about half the amount of money um of what we estimate is unpaid um how will the government decide who gets the funding
3: Um, that's interesting it's going to be a competitive grant situation for landlords Uh, the details of that have not really been released at this point but uh, landlords each month can put in and say listen this is my situation and the state will decide who gets the funding for that month now again $100 million uh, people on both sides of uh, advocate and tenants' rights and, and landlord rights don't think this is going to go nearly far enough
2: um So what are some of the landlord's concerns besides the tax credit? Is there other concerns? Well, they
3: want to see protections against um, tenants they think are are taking advantage of the situation. They want to see uh, a mechanism to prevent fraud. They want to see um, communication encouraged, which I think everyone would agree with. They want, actually, housing providers to be able to evict, without delay, any Uh, tenants who are not in need, but refusing to pay rent. So, you know, there's a little bit of a trust issue going on here. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, they don't want tenants to simply provide declarations at the last minute. Um, So little, the the devil's in the details, I guess, as it always is with legislation.
2: Sure. Is there any mechanism in place to, um, like, ensure that tenants applying for this relief actually need it?
3: Well, that would be the fact that they're going to be signing signing a formal declaration of financial hardship and that it is subject to the laws of perjury if it is indeed not true. So that is, from the lawmakers' standpoint, uh, they're hoping that's going to be the fail safe to make sure that these are, um, you know, honest and true declarations.
2: Totally. So um, if Tina Kotek gets her catastrophic special session, how quickly could this bill take effect?
3: Well, it would take effect january first okay,
2: great um, and how likely does it seem that we'll get that special section?
3: you know i uh don't have that kind of a crystal ball um not really <laughs> sure i I think that everyone at the state level understands the the urgency for this. I mean, it certainly is what they're talking about um every day, and so you know, in that respect, you think something is going to happen, but um I'm not going to make those predictions.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it does kind of seem like they've been back and forth about whether or not this will happen. And the clock is ticking, too. It is. It's already December. I know. (laughs) Well, Joanne, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Um, Where can people pick up a paper?
3: uh, Well, throughout town, our vendors are still out there selling. Um, Please support them. They're working hard. They come by, uh, you know, throughout the week, picking up their papers 7 30 in the morning, really early. Happy to be out there. Uh, so buy a paper
2: from your street roots vendors.
3: They will thank you for it.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you, Joanne, so much for joining us this morning. All right. Take care. Bye.
0: Thanks to Joanne for joining the local. And thank you for listening to the local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving your five star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. That's right.